welcome to the I Am A Health Mister podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amy. And today we come from Amy's house. We do! Hooray! <laughs> yeah, I've managed to escape London for a weekend, which is uh, yeah. very nice. It's so nice. It's so nice to have you in my house, Aww. recording in my house. And yeah. it's the yeah. first time we've actually managed to get together in a while to do podcast recording. So yeah. there's been a few things that have come up in um, the media and stuff that we wanted to talk about and I think one of the most important ones was um, from last month all triggered with a Guardian article wasn't it? Yeah exactly it all kicked off um, with this Guardian article um, with the headline feeding your baby solids early may help them sleep study suggests. Yeah and so this is further research that's come out from the EAT study, yeah. which the primary focus has been looking at trying to reduce allergies in children, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so yeah, trying to um, see whether if they introduce allergenic foods earlier, small amounts of them, introduce them at like three months, whether that makes a difference to whether the child then develops allergies. Yeah, and I'm guessing yeah. as part of the the wider kind of questionnaires and things they were asking the families. Yeah. They've now extrapolated this information. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, if we kind of look at the like methodology of the study just a little bit, because I think it's quite useful to do that. Um, they had 1,303 breastfeeding mums. Yeah. Um, and their three-month-old babies... And then they did like a random allocation, so it was like it's, it is it is essentially like an RCT. Well, it is an RCT, which is a really yeah. good quality yeah. of, of evidence. Um, they randomly allocated to half the mums to start introducing solids early, about three months, and the other half to wait until six months, um, which is the current recommended age for weaning. Yeah. Um, and they then once they'd allocated them the idea was they were then comparing lots of outcomes and one of those things that they used was the brief in- infant sleep questionnaire oh, okay. which I hadn't actually seen I've heard about it like they use it in lots of sleep research so I'd read about it before yeah I'd not actually seen the questionnaire so I downloaded the questionnaire itself um so we could have a look at it and it's got questions on the sleeping arrangements like where they sleep right. as in like in a crib in the parents' bed, you know, those things. What position they sleep. How much time does your child spend in sleep during the night? So uh-huh. it asks the parents to estimate hours and minutes they spend asleep at night. Right. And then the same in the day. Okay. How much time during the night does your child spend in wakefulness? So how literally hours and minutes they're awake okay. through the night. Um, how long does it take to put them to sleep in the evening? how do they fall asleep are they being fed are they being rocked you know how do they get off to sleep when do they fall asleep uh, as in the time and do you consider your child's sleep a problem so that's the questionnaire it's quite a short questionnaire but it's quite specific quite specific (laughs) on the one hand but then on the other hand it's that thing of actually if they've got different ideas about what time they feel child should be going to sleep and yeah. what time they should be waking up in the morning. Mm. That could really impact in that difference between sort of 
how long they feel it takes them to get the baby to sleep. Yeah. And the wakefulness overnight, because some would count them waking up at five in the morning as, oh, well, that's the start of our day. Yes, Others sure. would count that as nocturnal waking. Yeah. Well, it, it says between seven in the morning and seven in the evening. Oh, okay. Or between seven in the evening and seven in the morning. So, so it's stipulated times. But what I think's really tricky and I don't know whether I read out the average number of night wakings per night did I read that one out so that's yeah so that's literally they're asking you that's the other question on there on average how many times does your baby wake at night and I think that would be really difficult to estimate over a period of a month yeah because that for a start changes massively so like one day they might wake loads of times and the next day they might barely wake at all yeah and another di- and, and then that's changed again by next week and then changed again by yeah. next month. And if you said to me, over the last month, can you estimate how often? Yeah. I'm not sure that would be a very accurate number. No. And also there's like the what position does the child sleep in? I mean, there's going to be a huge complexity. I know most parents, especially with three-month-olds, are still putting them on their sleep on their back. Yeah. But there's also that thing of them knowing that's the correct advice. And so even once the child starts rolling over and things. I mean, and what happens if, yeah, you don't, by about six months old, they can, you can they go all to over them in the night yeah. and their, their feet are where their head was originally. Mm. So mm. how do you specify what position they sleep in? <laughs> and I think um, it's a self-report, It basically. It's a self-report measure. Yeah. And that's one of the big issues with this study is it's a self-report measure. And what you're talking about is sleep. So tired parents, that, Yeah. you know, are struggling with their sleep anyway how accurate are those numbers going yeah. to be of exactly how many minutes were they asleep on that night you know two months ago yeah it's going to be really difficult for you to get accurate numbers there so that's roughly the kind of methodology of it they took yeah. a huge number of, of babies and it's as part of this wider study on yeah eat and actually the quantities that they were suggesting they introduce are really small as well aren't they oh yes yes so it was six allergenic foods white fish wheat eggs peanuts cow's milk um and sesame. sesame yeah and actually i'm noticing as well these were in particular weeks that they had to yeah. start introducing them yeah so they had like a really specific protocol of the order that you introduce because obviously that's the main point of the study yeah. is to try and talk about so they're really focusing on the allergies not the sleep that's the main focus of the and they're actually only asking to give them two grams of each of these foods twice a week yeah which i mean yeah a teaspoon is five grams yeah so it's actually really minute. I mean, it's not a proper meal at all, is no, it? No, no, no. So that's just of the allergenic foods. So I think, um, I think when they they the non-allergenic foods like the vegetables and fruits, they're giving slightly higher quantities. Oh. So that's two grams each of these foods twice a week. So total of four grams of allergenic foods in a week. Right. Which is less than a teaspoon. But they were encouraging foods. them to give them as part of a, an actual meal. Yes, but right. it doesn't stipulate exactly how big that meal is. No. And typically when you first introduce solids, you are talking about really, really tiny quantities. Yes. I think we typically say an ice cube, don't we? Yeah. It's the kind of amount. We so like, yeah, two teaspoons or something. It doesn't yeah. say exactly how much in no. the... I can't find in the research paper anywhere where it says exactly how much no. quantity of the other foods they were introducing, but it's not it's not a huge portion is what I'm saying. No. Um, 
So what did the results find? Yeah, so this was the thing. So the, the questionnaires, did I say the questionnaires were sent online and then they were sent monthly? I think sent you did say that they were sent monthly. Yeah. yeah, so they're sent monthly and they filled in all of this information, like the diary, breastfeeding diary, and how well they've slept over the past week. Uh-huh. Um, and the results, so, okay, first of all... They asked the parents to start the solids in the early starting group. They asked them to they start. They were supposed to start them about three months, but on average, they actually started them around four months. Right. So they started okay. them a month later, um, and what I thought was really interesting is only about forty percent of the babies in the early solids group were actually eating the recommended amounts. Oh right. So the vast. So the majority of the children in the study didn't manage to achieve the amount that the protocol recommended that they were supposed to have. Right. Oh, so they, they weren't ones having more? So the, they, what they said was that the reason for this was because they found it difficult to get the child to eat which the amount would, that, yeah. that they were supposed to, which would suggest to me that the majority of them were eating less mm-hmm. than they were supposed to. Um, which I think says something in itself about their readiness at that age. If, if the parents are finding it difficult to get the child to eat yes. it, then yeah, perhaps yeah, yeah. it is a bit early. So I think that's quite an interesting finding. Yeah. So only 40% of them managed that. And was it straight across the board that in all of the age groups, babies who were having the solids, the sleep was improved? No. So, no, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so it wasn't like a linear thing, like, in that way. The the biggest difference they found in sleep was at six months of age. Okay. So for the first few months of the study, they didn't really find a big difference. No. They didn't find a big difference at any point of the study. But the biggest <laughs> difference they found was at the six-month mark. So that's for the children that had been on the early solids already for a couple of months by right. this point. Okay. Um, the biggest difference was 17 minutes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Which I don't think justifies the headline. <laughs> so, so introduce food early to your baby, and when they're six months old, they might <laughs> sleep seventeen minutes more than <laughs> yeah. another six months old. Maybe, possibly. Yeah, and this is all based on self-report data as well. So, yeah. if you're talking about a seventeen-minute difference, you have to be really accurate with your self-report data, don't you? Yeah. And I'm not convinced that well, self-report that, data could be why, that. Accurate. That's why they're being so accurate with it being you know one thousand three hundred and three babies in the study. <laughs> Those three babies. <laughs> They're the ones who slept for 13 <laughs> hours a night. Completely skewed all the other data. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, no. So, I don't know. But, I mean, to me, that doesn't feel like a huge difference no. that any mum around the country is going to be going, oh, I best immediately introduce something. Well, because I'm guessing that's 17 minutes as well. Because I, mean, I know they, they talk about it's like 1.7 wake-ups a night compared versus 2 wake-ups a night yeah on which average. Mean, how, how you can have 0.7 of a wake-up because up, it's an average I don't quite know <laughs> yeah, because it's an average so I heard noise I, I kind of went to sit up and then they went quiet again so I went back to sleep um but no, they so like on average it yeah. was 1.7 so some slept some woke up two some woke up but one I'm guessing some woke that, up three that 17 minutes extra is what they think they saved on the wake-up so, yeah, the duration of sleep was longer by 17 minutes yeah. on average in the 
early solid screw yeah. that was at six months of age and then the gap narrows again after six months so by seven eight months nine months of age it starts to get lower again yeah so you get that's the maximum amount of benefit you get um 1.7 night wakings versus two night wakings and i know we're going to come back to it in a moment but it is that thing of well it's not going to cause harm but then there's is there really benefit and um, yeah it's frustrating because it's been you know reported as being a huge benefit yeah actually yeah i think the, the headlines really have been really misleading and to be fair to the authors i think they've actually been quite measured in their response like as general this is generally what happens isn't it yeah research is completed the authors produce a nice measured press release that explains exactly the limitations and exactly what the study has found and then the media just take the headline and, and yeah. make it you know, with bigger it. Yeah. than it is and and also the thing to point out here is that it is a huge number of, of babies, so that they've got 1,300 babies. Yeah. So with that number of babies, you are going to detect differences, however yeah. small they are. So right. it's that old thing about the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. So yeah. if something's come up as a statistically significant difference on a study, but they've got so many babies that they're going to pick up tiny differences between the groups because there's a huge number of babies so the study's got a lot of power yeah. so because of that doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a clinically significant difference that a parent would care about no um, so but that's it, something it to pull out it just plays into that vulnerability that all pa- yeah, a lot of yeah. parents have around sleep and around you know it's like the um the University of Swansea videos about the are they a good baby, are they mm. sleeping mm. and reassuring and a lot of the information from infant sleep information source about, you know, actually showing it's you know, normal to wake up at night. I mean blimey, I still wake up in the night. Yeah. And roll over and then <laughs> yeah. go back to sleep again. Yeah. yeah, we're not we're not meant to sleep solidly without moving or yeah. stirring. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And I think it's it's everybody's looking for a panacea, aren't they? Yeah. Which makes it unhelpful, really, because for health visitors, there's going to be lots of health visitors out there that really struggle, like I do, when parents are asking me about sleep, because there really is no hard and fast rules. Like, there's no they should yeah. be asleep for this amount of time, yeah. or you know, if they're not doing that by this age, then that's oh, you know exactly. they're not they're not there. But what I did think was interesting as well about this. Um, about the research, the results of this study is the babies that did achieve the protocol. So you know, I said only forty percent of them actually managed to give the amount of food that they told them to give. Yeah. So the ones that did give the amount, that did manage to get the child to eat the amount yeah. they were supposed to, those ones did show a bigger difference in sleep. Right. So I'm not sure exactly how much bigger. I probably tired them out. I can come on, come on. Yes. <laughs> Well, it could just be that those babies were more developmentally ready for food. Possibly. You know, because it's not just as simple as as soon as they hit six months, like, on the dot. No. It's all about the age. Oh, yeah, no, There's no. other signs of readiness, yeah. aren't there? So but it's that worrying yeah. thing where, I mean, you know, going, I mean, obviously, you know, the infant feeding survey, which is very much missed, mm. and still the Department of Health saying, yeah, no, we're, we're not going to reintroduce it. it. We're not, you know, <laughs> why would we need to reintroduce this? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still um, using the twenty ten yeah, dental. Yeah, are you are you still are you really a a qualified health visitor if you haven't referenced it at any point yeah. in your course? <laughs> sure, you definitely have. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they yeah their their last survey in twenty ten they had 
75% of mums were giving solids pre-six months. Yeah. And 26% were reporting that night waking was an influencing factor. Yeah. And yeah. it is that frustrating way. It's like, well, how can we get the message across that actually night waking is developmentally normal? Yeah. Um, it's something which doesn't always mean hunger. No, it doesn't. At all, yeah. And even if it does mean hunger, it's that interpretation of that hunger, isn't it? So your interpretation of them waking more frequently and being hungry in the night more when they're two months old is different from your interpretation of it when they're four or five months old for some reason. So at four or five months, we assume that it must be because they're somehow missing solids. Whereas at two months, we just think they want an extra milk feed. Yeah, which is random because at four or five months, we know their sleep pattern is changing yeah, they're starting to feel the pressure about the uh, 9 to 12 month ASQ you know, they've got to the, get be, you know, they've got to be cruising by about 9-10 yeah. months <laughs> otherwise like, the helper's just going to tell them off gross so. motor skills section of the ASQ is harsh <laughs> it's fierce and they know that you they're going to get cramming they've been to the baby groups, they've heard the word from the one year olds you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so development changes can make a big difference as well to their nighttime waking. But so it might not even be hunger. But even if it is hunger, the answer at that age is usually to give milk, more yeah. milk, and that is what you would do if they were waking more frequently when they were younger. Yeah. But somehow because they're five months old or they're four months old, we yeah. assume that it's because they weren't solids. Yeah, exactly. So broadly, that's the results of the study. It wasn't quite living up to the headlines that it received. <laughs> no, no. And it was quite quickly followed, like, a week or so later, by um, another article on the mm-hmm. BBC. Yes, it almost swung the other way, didn't yeah. it? Which was quite interesting. Like, literally a week or two li- yeah. afterwards. So what was the headline of that one? So um, that was about overfeeding, wasn't it? Um, too many babies overfed experts fear. Okay, so this um, is almost swinging the opposite direction now. And um, it is a thing where it does tie in so much to things that we've talked about um, previously around introduction of solid foods mm. and um, kind of just the, I mean, sort of with the commercial foods that are available, the portion size are often so big mm. um, that you end up with this false sense of how much a child mm. should be having. Mm. I mean, we've highlighted before the information available at First Steps Nutrition. Mm. Um, which is brilliant. Which, again, yeah, we will, I will recommend until I'm blue in the face because yeah. they are completely independent yeah. of any food or formula funding, unlike the uh, Infant Feeding Forum, mm. which I think, if I'm correctly remembering, has quite a proportion of funding from Danone. Oh, does it? I yeah. don't know. I don't really know much about it. Um... But, but so, so this was actually talking about a um a government report that had come out. Yeah. Which I can't remember the name of now. <laughs> it was called Feeding in the First Year of Life. Oh, that's so this it. is new. It's literally been published in July yeah. twenty eighteen. And it was written by I call the abbreviation. I can't remember what the abbreviation stands for. S A C N. Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition. Lovely. So they'd so. What I thought was really interesting, because again, the headline doesn't, as usual, doesn't kind of pull out the detail of the actual research. So the headline is, too many babies overfed experts fear. They And what was interesting in terms of comparing it with the last 
research that we were just talking yeah. about, the early weaning study, is that actually the evidence on um, whether early weaning does or does not cause obesity in later life is yes. really mixed. Yeah. So I was expecting that to be a simpler answer yeah to be honest with you but actually from their research there's there's lots and lots of studies on this and they've kind of collated them all and did a little summary and um the it, there isn't a clear no clear conclusion Which to me makes complete sense because mm. there are so many wider factors yeah um and so it's really difficult to get that message across at times about how important this good start is yeah because actually, you know, you, we all know that different ways that life can go. Yeah, and, absolutely. you know, sort of what other things can impact around social, you know, social, economic, health. Yeah. You know. Um, Loads of factors in the family yeah, that can have an impact. Yeah, completely. And what I thought that they pulled out in that government document that you were saying in particular has kind of got lost, but actually is probably the headline. Yeah, yeah. Really. So... It was talking about how, um, so in the actual methodology, because also this this article is 290 pages long. Yeah. It's not a light read. And I must, <laughs> it's not really, from a healthist point of view, it's not laid out very clearly to really be able to, to sort of get the information you want easily. Mm. Um, it's kind of scattered throughout the whole, um, the whole document. So Amy and I have been doing sort of, dips into it in mm. the last day or mm. so. Mm. Um, and just kind of swan it under the methodology um, part, which is um, section two, um, found it really interesting. They talk about how yeah, the second half of infancy can be a particularly challenging period nutritionally and that widening the range of foods um, accepted introduces um, sort of considerations about energy and nutrition um, and that the demand for it, recognising the demand varies as the infant grows and levels of physical activity increase, and that there may be short-term variation in nutritional demands, for example, loss of appetite and subsequent catch-up growth associated with illness. And that is something which I think, especially with these older babies, you know, mm. six months plus, there is so often parents saying, oh, but they, they ate really well last week and now they're not eating so well. And, yeah. and just, yeah. I think we always have reassured them it's good to have that sort of scientific... Um, superhero cake to be able to go up and science proves this happens yeah <laughs> um but then also it's like looking at the acceptance of new foods being influenced by a number of biological and social factors yes so that's what we're saying about the wider picture isn't it yeah exactly and the nature of the relationship between the dependent child and caregiver which is evolving in their early years of life being a key determinant in the child's nutritional intake yeah. and that what so, the child needs might not always match the caregiver's perceptions. So that, for me, that bit about the child's relationship with the mum or the dad, the person that's trying to feed them, being the key determinant, that's almost the headline that's lost yeah. in amongst all completely. of the other stuff that we've and from talked our, about. And from our point of view, it's such a key thing because it completely yeah. ties into that early bonding, that yeah, relationship, that mm. responsiveness, yeah. Responsive feeding continues well beyond breast or bottle feeding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just really interesting how yeah they sort talk about you know the way in which food is offered or administered has to take into account the child's developmental progression. Yeah. Um, and yeah, at what age even foods presented will also modify acceptance and either help or hinder 
diversification of the diet, perhaps with long-term implications for eating behaviour. Yeah. So all of those factors can have long-term implications for eating behaviour. I mean, that's what they're saying, really. Um, but that the key determinant of it is the relationship the child has with the caregiver. So yeah. all of that stuff on attachment and attunement, like you say, the parent yeah. being in tune with the child's cues. And so that leads us quite nicely in terms of being in tune with their cues onto the signs of readiness I think because it is more than just their age isn't it it's more than just oh they're six months so that's it they're ready now or they're not six months so they can't be and it's that thing of I would love for there to be a time when actually we don't even have to put an age on it and that we are actually saying to parents look out for them sitting upright you know being able to get the hat get pick a food item up get it to their mouth to chew, to move it to the back of the mouth, to swallow. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I often use the example because obviously you don't, you don't want to be encouraging parents to give their younger babies things to chew and swallow. No. But that thing of the milk tongue, I think it's in the first sex nutrition booklet about eating mm. well the first year, mm. where they talk about that thing of if they pick up a toy or something and it comes towards the mouth, if their tongue's sticking out, mm. that's because it's the milk tongue, they call yeah, it. They're okay. still expecting to get milk. And the tongue's out because they're wanting to milk whatever they get. So that's how and so that's they like, would milk they, they the breast by yeah, sticking yeah. their tongue out. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then where else, if they're getting a toy and bring it to their mouth and the tongue is still inside, then that's an indicator actually they're going to go jaws first. Yeah, okay. And almost like chomping kind of movement. Yeah. And I mean, I admit, yeah, I put my hands up. I actually, we, you know, introduced sausage foods to both of my kids before six months. Yeah. But because they were sharing all these signs of readiness. Ready. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I think it was my, my daughter. It felt like she was going to take the skin off of my finger. Because <laughs> she sort of grabbed my finger. We were in, she was in baby carrier. And walking home and started getting upset and things and grab yeah and I sort of you know put my hand in front of her face to entertain her a bit and she grabbed hold of my finger, got it in her mouth <laughs> and this was like yeah I mean luckily she didn't have, I think she only had like one tooth, but my gum, <laughs> ow, <laughs> and then with my second I think which is a very common story for second children, um he grabbed a chip on <laughs> yeah. my plate the yeah. meal time I had him on my lap. Uh, we were out and he just like grabbed it and we were like, oh, and I was like, oh, okay, okay that's we're going. ready for food, are we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so and it's start... like, you know, a matter of weeks away from six months. Yeah. But it's like we always say, there's no thunderbolt on the six months. They don't birthday. suddenly, like, yeah, become ready when they weren't before. There is a bit about gut maturity, which is one of the reasons they say to wait for six months. And that's obviously something that you can't see. No. Um, so that is tricky. But having said that, I think if all the other signs of developmentally being ready are there, then that's a good indication to yeah. you that your baby's ready for And I think foods. as well, I mean, if you think about it, it's that thing where chewing, if you're chewing gum or something, mm. you you get the um, enzymes and things that you release, the gastric yeah. juices and things. And so I think it would... I mean, I, I do always think back to, well, what on earth, how did cavemen know? No, exactly. I think it's it's all evolved to happen all around the same yeah, time, isn't it? Yeah. Those developmental signs of readiness are likely to coincide yeah. with the signs that we can't see. And it's like, as well, yeah. the, um, the fantastic Amy Brown book about yeah. um, you know, why solid foods matter. Yeah. And I mean, she spoke about how, you know, we always think of this early weaning being something that's been around forever. 
Yeah. And it's such a recent invention. Okay. You know, yes, I didn't know this either. 110 years ago, yes, or, or yeah, Victorian times, babies were weaned or were introduced solid foods at eight to nine months. Mm. And that was typical age for introducing solid mm. foods. Mm. Um, and actually what pushed the, the earlier introduction was industry rather than yeah. evidence. Yeah. Because canning foods became a thing. Yeah, they had yeah. all these canned fruits and vegetables and they were like, well, what can we do? How can we sell this? And so, like, marketing-wise, they said, oh, well, look, they're so soft, you could give them to a baby. Mm. And so gradually, the age at which introducing solid foods came forward, there were social pressures around the um, war as well mm. and wanting to encourage mums out to work and things. And then it got so bad that I think by the 1960s, I think there's someone, and I can't remember, annoyingly, I forgot to bring the book up with me, but there was someone um, that Amy talked about in the book who was advising that babies should be starting solid foods at 10 days old. Goodness me. And that, you know, by by literally a month old, they should be having three meals a day and yeah. things. Um, so, I mean... Obviously, when they're really little, they're just not ready for that. There's a yeah. risk of choking. They're not able to sit, hold their head. And like you say, when you see babies that are not ready for solids and you see them eating solids, you can tell they're not ready because they're pushing the food back out oh, with their they tongue. Oh, don't like it! Yeah. <laughs> oh! Yeah. So, but it's not necessarily they don't like the taste. It might just be that they can't tolerate it yeah. being they don't they know how move to move it around it's push it to the back such of their a mouth. complicated thing how you know how to swallow is if you think about it if you were there sort of trying to teach someone who never swallowed you have to chew the food you have to move it around the mouth to make it capsule yeah. and also actually to add a bit of saliva in to stop it from drying and sticking then you have to move it to the back of your throat and then prepare your throat for that coordinated action of the food going down and the swallow happening. Yeah. It's really, you know, it's We're a not lot easy. to learn. Yeah. There. No, definitely. So if you see your baby, like, poking their tongue back out and pushing the food back out with their tongue, that's a sign that they're not ready. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the signs of readiness as well, um, which, which come in. But the other yeah. thing... I thought was good about that um, government document that is maybe relevant to this early weaning thing that we're talking about um, was the energy intake studies. So yes. they were looking at, so they looked at early weaning and the energy intake from children that had had early weaning and children that were just exclusively breastfed. And they found that energy, the actual calories in terms of the energy levels that they'd received were the same. So what was happening was the children that had had early weaning, instead of getting extra energy, they were down-regulating the amount of breastfeeding they were doing to make up for that energy that they were receiving from the solid food. So they were actually having slightly less breast milk than they would have been so what so that doesn't mean they're getting less no. so they're obviously well, getting wonder, from the more from the I breast milk they're getting more than calories because I mean, the other thing as well is like and yeah part of the thing with early weaning is that these foods we're introducing often very water-based yeah, and they're the vegetables the fruits sure they're yeah far less dense calorie dense than yeah. breast milk is yeah and yeah. the other thing with that yeah introducing food early is actually you you're doing them out of calories so these are so they were, so they found that you weren't doing them out of calories, but they were saying I suppose these are small differences because mm. they're looking at large numbers again and on average. So as we know, as you start to increase the volumes of solid foods you feed babies, 
generally, if they're exclusively breastfed, they will reduce the amount they breastfeed in line with that over a period, a long yeah, period yeah. of months. So you're looking at that transition from six months to 12 months of having slightly more solids and slightly less milk as they get older and that isn't what naturally would happen yeah. so that is what they're talking about but that's starting earlier if you introduce solids earlier so the important thing that they were pulling out from that is that actually introducing solids earlier might not be helpful in terms of encouraging longer breastfeeding right. so they were saying obviously there's lots more benefits to breastfeeding than the literally the energy intake mm. there's more to it than that and yeah when you're taking in breast milk you're not just taking in energy you're also taking in all the immune factors the bonding the relationship side of it yeah. there's all those other things wonderful things we know about breast milk so by introducing the solids early and then reducing their breastfeeding earlier you may then have a shorter duration of breastfeeding overall right. I see. which could be a problem so that yes. was one thing they were pointing out which i thought was important for this um, and when you look at a societal level and like changing the advice on introducing solids and things like that, yeah. that's an important factor to well, bear in mind. Well, everyone always thinks that the advice has been changing. It's actually been at six months for quite a long time yeah. now, since about 2003. Oh, okay. Um, and even before then, I think it was bef- between four to six months, and then 2003 it became at six months. Okay. Um, and it just really frustrates the heck out of me when you get everyone going, and especially some of the nans. Oh, I don't know, the advice is always changing. Well, no, it's not. And actually, also, it's important to make clear it's good that it's guys. changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's important. And, and actually, changes to these guidelines these days are uh, research based rather than industry based. Yeah, which is you know, good. Those yeah. previous, I mean, I mentioned with the, um, the, the onset of early, earlier introducing solid foods it was completely you know industry led yeah it's a social no, social yeah, thing no concern than... no concerns over the actual impact on health of babies mm. whereas now we do have this evidence regarding their health and that's what these yeah. recommendations are based upon which is why it's a good thing the evidence that that guidelines change definitely um, it shows that it's advice that you can trust yeah um, because it's changing or, but I think the fact that actually it has stayed at six months shows that despite all we've the evidence, right. yeah. we've got this right. You know, this is not something which yeah. is really changing anytime soon. No, they've said that obviously they do reconsider the guidelines on the basis of research that comes out. But the statement that has been made is that although they will do that, this study doesn't provide enough evidence for them to want to be changing the guidance which i think is perfectly reasonable given you know what we're talking about the biggest difference at six months of age was 17 minutes yeah on average and 1.7 night wakings versus two night wakings it is not big differences and when you consider all those wider factors in the context that we're talking about regarding breastfeeding and energy intake and all of the other kind of factors that are relevant the relationship between mother and baby yeah in the wider context, it makes perfect sense why yeah. the age is where it is. Yeah, um, definitely. And it's more important to look at the signs of readiness than necessarily yeah. always the age anyway. Yeah. So that's briefly the study. So hopefully people can feel confident talking to parents yeah. about it if they've yeah. seen the headlines. And or... also, you know, if it's something you're looking at, if it's what you need to do, if you're um, student health is set and you're looking at um, something for your portfolio 
also for an upcoming essay. I hope that we've been able to give you a bit of insight Mm. and maybe sort of slightly different way to uh, look at information. As we know, I'm the first to put my hands up and say how dry I find reading articles and textbooks (laughs) and things. So, um, And the EAT study is such a huge study. Oh, crumbs, yeah. Um, But this is just one spin-off paper from the EAT study. So this is actually quite quite an accessible length in yeah. terms of, you know, when I saw that it was the EAT study, I thought, oh God, we're going to be here for days reading all yeah. of this. But actually it's not the EAT study, it's just one small publication yeah. from that, so it is readable. We'll link to all the documents and yes. everything on the... Uh, yeah, It's worth having a look on Twitter as well and see what different people's responses were yeah. around the paper and things. It's something which is often a really good, easy way to... Um, sort of take the temperature a bit and things mm. as to how others are, are perceiving um, these sorts of stories in the media. Yeah. Um, and because they often end up linking on to other things. You can fall down a bit of a wormhole yeah. with it <laughs> yeah. and sort of emerge three days later going, oh my word, I didn't know there was so much <laughs> to read. Of stuff. Um, um, but yeah, but in the meantime, we're going to head off. Yeah. And uh, please do... Um, if you're listening on iTunes, please do rate and, yeah, and review us. Nice. Um, it'd be really nice to have some more comments on there because obviously this helps if other people find our podcast and if they've got comments about what other people have thought of the podcast can help them to uh, make decisions to hopefully to listen to it. Um, and also it makes it easier for people to find if it's been rated lots of times apparently. Yes. Yeah. Um, although saying that, I think just putting Health Visitor into iTunes, we pretty much are the first. I think we're the only, only. one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of the reasons we started it, because I was just shocked that it was literally nothing for yeah. nursing or midwifery or no. health visiting. So. Um, but you can contact us on Twitter at IamAHV, um, via our Facebook page, which is I am a Health Visitor, or even by email, IamAHealthVisitor at gmail.com. Oh, you're so good at that, Jenny. Oh, I know. It's Got the years of, down. It's the years of listening to sort of, you know, Radio 2, Radio 4 and, and various <laughs> radio stations that I just, yeah, I, I, what can I say? I'm that child who wanted to grow up to be a Blue Peter presenter. Oh, and you've managed it. Sort of. No. No, no. I this still, isn't Blue I, Peter, is it really? It's not. No, no. I, I'd still like earlier. to, but I'm, I'm 41 now, I think. I'm way too old to do Blue Peter, <laughs> aren't I? Oh, well. We'll <laughs> still have you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, so thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we'll hopefully see you soon. Yeah, bye. Bye.